Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. A couple weeks ago, I did a podcast on a review of the Sing 2019 conference hosted by Keith and Kristen Getty, and that was in Nashville, Tennessee. It was my third year attending the conference, but really, um, as I've been thinking about music and worship and a Christian's role and responsibility, this has been probably five or six years that I've really been studying the Word of God, uh, meditating on this issue, talking about it with my fellow pastors, and in our church, we've been trying to implement the principles that were communicated by Keith and Kristen Getty at the Sing Conference. Those principles we've been trying to implement for the last, you know, number of years, probably probably at least five years. What I want to do today is talk about worship music, give you some insights to worship music that I have gleaned from the scriptures, and that may help to shed some light on you and your church, and how you're thinking through the worship music process. Um, you know, for many years, and I, I don't know if this is still true or not, I, I haven't visited an extensive amount of churches, but I find that in the last 15 to 25 years, maybe maybe a little bit longer, there's basically been a number of frustrations that people have regarding worship music and the church. One of the frustrations is this, that there is such a stylistic difference between what older saints want as worship music and what younger saints want as worship music, that the stylistic difference is difficult to overcome, and there's not a spot to find common ground. And for whatever reason, churches are giving preference to those saints who are younger, and older saints are being left out and they are not able to enjoy listening or singing. Really, it should be singing and participating in music which uh, has been meaningful and significant to them in their Christian life and walk. There may be a lot of reasons why that happens. I don't want to speculate on motivations for any specific church. I will say that I, I think the church growth model of doing church where you are cultivating a, a Sunday morning service that is palatable for those who are unbelievers, I think that that model in particular lends itself to emphasizing what young people want rather than what is traditional in the church or which would please a broader spectrum of the congregation. And, you know, there may be some church growthy type church out there that, that don't do that, but by and large, that's, um, that's a real problem when the church growth mentality is adopted and then applied to music. In support of that idea, you know, I would just say as a pastor, um, looking back on folks who have visited our church or people who have uh, begun attending our church over the last 10 years or so, I would say if I had to make an anecdotal statement, so I don't have any like hardline evidence to back this up, you know, I didn't take a survey. Nobody in our church took a survey. 
But it seems that one of the reasons people at least come to try out our church, they come through the door, they visit for a couple weeks, whether they stay or not, you know, is a different story. But one of the things that they say when you say, well, how come you left your previous church? The music went contemporary. I don't like the style of music. It's too, too rocky for me. It's too, uh, it's too contemporary. I don't, I don't like it. You know, that's not everybody who comes through our door, but I would say a fair percentage of people, a pretty high percentage of people who have visited our church have said that one of the reasons they left was due to music at their previous location. Now, sometimes those people end up going back there, but um, it's a reality that music is something that would either or will either keep people or drive people away. A second thing that I think occurs, and it has occurred very subtly within the church, is that our culture has encroached upon Christianity to such a degree that we now have generational wars within the church just as we have generational wars in the culture. Now think about this. When you turn on the news and you listen to reports of various events that are happening, um, the news media and those who are opinion journalists, those sometimes who are serious, legitimate journalists, they are always breaking our culture down into different categories. You've got the, the greatest generation, which is really the greatest generation, the World War II generation, is um, really vanishing from the scene at a rapid pace. Their influence is really waning in our society, not, not very strong any longer. Well, who's, who's the next generation? That would be the baby boomers. The baby boomers are the next generation. And they are a extremely large and influential generation. Then you've got Gen X. Then you've got the millennials. And everybody loves to dump on the millennials because, you know, <laughs> they're millennials. They're only interested in their own stuff, right? They, don't, they only care about themselves. They don't care about tradition. They don't care about history. They don't care about anything else. They just were like, hey, you know, I want the lavish lifestyle that my parents or grandparents, the baby boomers, enjoyed. Um, and I want it now, and I don't want to work hard for it. Right, that's kind of the reputation that millennials have. Then you have Gen Z, uh, which is the generation after millennials, and who knows what, who knows what they're going to do? But they're the first generation that's like truly grown up with a smartphone as a regular part of life. Like, um, I'm a millennial, and I didn't get a smartphone until probably 2013, maybe 14. Somewhere in that neighborhood is the first time I got a smartphone. I had a cell phone for a long time, just a dumb phone, but it was a long time before I got a smartphone. Well, Gen Z's growing up with a smartphone, with a tablet, with all of this uh, new technology right at their fingertips. So we, we don't really know what's going to happen with them. All that to say, and that, that's a little bit of an aside, but it brings me back to this main point of how the culture influences the church. All that to say Secular media sources divide the generations of America up and they pit them one against the other. They pit them against each other and, and they don't uh, talk about intergenerationalism, which is what one generation can learn from another and how truth and tradition can be passed down from one generation to the next. 
but rather what we have in our culture and what is promoted in our culture is that the the youngest generation, the most current generation, the one that is um, just just now coming into some type of political or cultural influence, it right now it would be the millennials. They are right in how they view life. They are the most advanced. They're the most progressive. They've been taught the best, and we should discard the Gen X. We should discard the baby boomers because those ideas, the ideas that they have are from a time past, a time that we no longer want to remember in our history. All right, so that's how the culture is treating generations. And by golly, that stuff comes right into the church, whether we want it to or not. You know, here's how it comes into the church. We have a program for every age group. You know, the four-year-olds, the eight-year, the six-year-olds, the 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 first graders, second graders, third graders. We have a, a youth group that's divided into the junior high, into the senior high. And then we've got the college age. We've got the young marrieds. We've got young marrieds with children. We've got the the thirties and forties. We've got the fifties. We've got the sixties. We have programs for every single group of people within the church, and we've divided it all up. And we've built all these artificial barriers within the body of Christ. It's not to be that way in the body of Christ. In fact, the New Testament says that, you know, younger believers are to learn from older believers. Older believers are to take time to invest, to care, to counsel, to help young people grow. But because the culture has so influenced the church, the church can't help but become so divided. Because you know, when people are coming to the door, they want to know, do you have all these programs? Do you have this? Do you have that? And so churches are trying to accommodate that instead of trying to redirect the thinking or reprogram the, t- the thinking through biblical teaching. So how does that affect music? Well, it affects music because if you have this generational breakdown, this generational independence within the local church, those who are in charge, those who are making decisions are going to look at the congregation and say, which generation do we want to support? Which generation do we want to promote? We can only really please one or two, and so that means somebody else is going to be left out. A lot of times, uh, leadership, maybe directly or indirectly, uh, knowingly or unknowingly, wittingly or unwittingly, however you want to phrase it, will choose the direction of music that pleases the younger generation because they say, well, that's the future. That's the future. We want to please those people. We don't want to lose them. Well, I don't think that's the right way to choose music. I don't think that's a biblical way to choose music, but it's a way that music is chosen often in the church. Thus, there are two factors that result in churches having a music war over style, preference, everything else within their own walls. And the one factor then is summarized by saying a church that follows the church growth model, appealing, choosing music that appeals to unbelievers or appeals only to a younger generation. And that really is helped along by the second factor, which is generationalism within our churches and the pitting of one generation against another. How then do we recover? 
a biblical perspective on music that would emphasize what the Bible emphasizes and also treat each generation, each group of believers, each subset of believers within the church, we, we have to acknowledge that there are differences amongst us. But how do we treat one another in such a way that is uplifting, God-honoring, and thoughtful, caring, loving, maintaining the unity of the body? Well, first, I think we have to redefine in our minds as the church, and this goes to the leadership. The leadership has to take action on this. The pastor, um, the worship leader, whoever it is who's making the directional decisions for music ministry, they have to get back to a biblical perspective on what music is and what it is designed to accomplish. Now, if you were just read your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you would find that music is an essential part of the human experience. Music is an essential part of a religious experience and also the non-religious experience. Uh, Think about how much money and time and energy is invested by secular Americans on secular music. Music really is a unifying pursuit. It brings people together because they can share in a common message, a common experience, and it will help them cultivate a way of thinking and a way of feeling. That common way of thinking and feeling will oftentimes unite a culture together. Well, why do you think there's such a controversy over kneeling during the national anthem? You know, the national anthem is a rather recent invention in American history. Why is there such a controversy over it? Well, because it's become a symbol of what we stand for as Americans. And to protest the national anthem is to protest what it means to be American. Now, some may say, well, you know, protesting the national anthem is American because I'm exercising my freedom of speech, my right to assemble. Okay, that's fine. We're not going to get off on too far of a discussion on that. But the reality is that's not how people view the national anthem. They, they view the national anthem as something that all Americans, no matter what political persuasion or ideology, can get behind and support and sing and defend. You see, music brings people together. It unites them in an ideology. And when you don't share the ideology, when you don't practice that, it can cause real problems and real dissension amongst people. So think about this in the Bible. Music is used throughout the history of the Bible to teach about God, to declare his mighty deeds, and to offer him praise and thanksgiving. Music unites the people of God by communicating a common message about God and offering a common praise to God with the result that everyone who learns and sings the song will have a common perspective on who God is, what God has done, and what an appropriate response to him ought to be. Think about some of the great events in Israel's history that were memorialized in song. After the exodus from Egypt, Moses' sister Miriam 
wrote a song for the nation to learn and sing regarding God's mighty deeds and his great deliverance from Egypt. That should have unified the entire nation of Israel, teaching them that it wasn't just by accident that they left Egypt, but it was because of the sovereign plan of the great God named Yahweh. King David appointed Asaph to lead a choir that would sing in the temple, or not in the temple, because the temple wasn't built yet, but in the tabernacle, in the worship service, during the various parts of the festivals and feast days that Israel had. And the whole purpose of this was so that Israel, the nation, could learn truth about God through song. They would have a set of songs that would unify them. And when you read the Psalms, you get this idea and impression over and over and over again how important music is to communicate truth. It says, you know, at the title of many psalms, a psalm of David for the choir director, a psalm of Asaph for the choir director, a song of Solomon for the choir director. The psalms were meant to be sung because they contained the theological and practical truth that was necessary to live a life pleasing to Yahweh. They were in addition to the law because the law communicated one aspect of God's truth, one aspect of God's revelation. But the Psalms communicated another aspect of God's revelation. The Psalms touched the emotions of the human experience and expressed them through song. And often the key The real key to spiritual growth was going through a difficult time or trial and looking to Yahweh for deliverance. And when he granted the deliverance, then you praised him. That's the purpose of the Psalms. In the New Testament, believers are commanded and encouraged to sing on multiple occasions. Singing was important to Jesus and his disciples. After the final meal that he ate with them, it says they arose from the table, they sang a hymn, and they went out. And think about what hymn they would have chosen to sing at that time. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, the disciples fearful of what might take place, but not understanding completely, what hymn would you choose to sing? It is well with my soul. Amazing grace. And can it be? I mean, there are, there are dozens of hymns that might be appropriate for that situation to both reassure you and your faith in God and to comfort you and to help you know that God will care for you no matter what happens. One of the best commands to sing is found in the New Testament in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you singing songs and making melody in your hearts with all thankfulness to God. Look, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, how do you get the word of Christ to dwell richly in your heart? You put it to a melody, you put it to a tune, and you sing it over and over again. It helps you memorize the word of God. I don't think there's anyone who would deny the importance of music to God's people and to 
what ought to occur during the worship service when God's people gather together. But music does cause a conflict. We must acknowledge that. There are two factors that I mentioned before. How do you overcome those two factors? How do you overcome those things? I would say there are a couple of things that we need to do that are really scriptural in nature. Number one, I think that you have to have real biblical leadership on the issue of music. Whoever the pastor is, or pastors, and the worship leader, they need to get together and sit down and iron out a theology of music. What do we want to accomplish as we're singing? What do we want to teach the saints as we're singing? You know, the worship leader isn't just a guy who's the most musically talented person in the church. In fact, the worship leader may not be that musically talented at all, but he may be theologically skilled and capable of interacting with the congregation. The music leader has to be a theologian as much as he is a musician because his theology has to match the theology that is being taught from the pulpit. His theology can't be separate from that. His theology must be in tune with what the pastor and the leadership of the church is teaching. You can't sing a shallow song and then expect to have deep worship when you come to hear the Word of God. No, you have to sing rich theological truths to prepare your heart and mind to listen to rich theological truths. Therefore, if you're facing conflict in your church regarding music, if you're a pastor who's frustrated, or maybe you're a worship leader who's frustrated, or maybe even you're a saint who's frustrated, find a way to approach your pastor and talk to him about, have you and the worship leader spent time together planning, praying, thinking through what we're going to do on a Sunday morning for music? Have you come to a consensus on the philosophy of music and its use and purpose in the church? I would say that's step number one in terms of helping to resolve conflicts, or maybe you don't have any conflicts, but becoming even better at being integrated in all aspects of your worship service together. We must acknowledge, number two, that there are preferences that people have. People do have preferences of styles of music that they like and enjoy. I happen to enjoy, you know, 90s country music. My wife doesn't. She likes um, soft piano music and opera and some other things like that. And I just, I don't, I don't, I enjoy it. I appreciate it for its musicality, but that the music doesn't get me excited. We all have music that speaks to us and music that doesn't speak to us. That can be, there can be various reasons for that. It could be, some of it could be cultural. Some of it could be um, what you've been trained in or what you are gifted in. Some of it could be tradition that, you know, I may like all this other type of music, but traditionally we just don't do that in church. Well, why not? Why are we so hung up on that as Americans? I've been to other cultures in the world and they have elements of 
their cultural music that they bring into the church and they don't seem to have problems with it. Although, you know, I don't know. I, I haven't been in those cultures for long enough to know whether it's a real problem or not, but I don't think it is. So we have preference issues. We have issues of tradition. We have issues of selfishness. You know, maybe you have a worship leader or a, a worship committee who picks out music and they only pick out music that is of their preference. They don't pick out a balance of music that would satisfy the needs of everyone in the congregation. Now, again, we're not trying to put the needs of the congregation ahead of theology. We're not trying to put the needs of the congregation ahead of singing sound doctrine. But I think what you are trying to do is you're trying to say, all right, on any given Sunday, can everybody who comes to our church identify and enjoy singing a song that is in their wheelhouse, is something that they prefer. It, doesn't, it won't happen every single Sunday. You know, some Sundays, for example, in our church, we'll have um, four modern hymns and no traditional hymns. And when I say modern hymn, I mean a, a, a real hymn, not like a praise song that has a chorus that repeats over and over again. I'm talking about a modern hymn written in a four-part harmony with three to four stanzas. Sometimes it has a chorus included, sometimes not. A modern hymn uh, that was written within the last 15, 20 years, something like that. We may have four of those on a Sunday. But some other Sunday, we might have four very traditional hymns. And by traditional, I mean a hymn that has been around to survive one to two to three generations of the faith. These are songs that have stood the test of time because they have a deep and rich theological message, and they have a singable melody, and they're accessible for people in all age group of the congregation. So you have traditional hymns, you have modern hymns. How do you then, how do you work through this process of selecting music, of choosing songs for the church to sing. There's a principle found in Philippians chapter 2 that I think ought to really enlighten and inform us on how to best choose music for the church. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. One of the great applications for this verse in the church is in the music ministry. Where else can you put somebody else's interests above yourself in such a clear and obvious way that you would say to someone, you know, I, I'm not a huge fan of such and such style of music, but it teaches truth and it's important to some people in our church and therefore I'm going to make it a priority to sing that song or to sing songs like that song as part of our regular worship together. Likewise, somebody else may say, you know, I don't prefer to sing this type of music, but I'm going to sing it because it's important to you. I think Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, not doing anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but with humility of mind regarding others as more important than yourself, that is a lesson that pastors and music leaders and teachers uh, need to take to heart. 
Saints need to take it to heart. Saints need to be taught about this so that as they're singing a diversity of songs within the worship service, they can come to the point where they say, yeah, I'm really glad that I'm being challenged in my musical preferences. I'm being challenged in my musical ability to sing and worship in ways that I'm not used to, to do things that are different than what I've normally done. It's a great opportunity to cultivate a fellowship, a unity, a togetherness that should characterize God's church. The bottom line in all this is that music shouldn't be a source of wars and conflict between believers. Rather, music ought to be something that brings believers together, gives them a unified truth to sing, a unified joy to share. You know, the purpose of music is to reflect the filling of the Holy Spirit that each of us are to be filled with. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, for this is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, singing and making melody in your hearts with one another, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You know, the, the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit is that you will sing to one another, that you will make melody, that you will be joyful, that you will encourage one another. If there is a music war going on in your church or what should you do about it? I would say the first thing to do is to get the leadership together. Pastors, worship leader, maybe others who are involved in choosing what happens in the service on a Sunday morning, and start talking about how are we going to prioritize what to sing? How are we going to prioritize what to do when the church gathers together? Pastors and music leaders should be looking for ways that they can work together, not ways that they can work apart, not ways that they can um, undermine one another or throw shade at one another, but they should be looking for ways to unite the church. Maybe that means a pastor needs to be more involved in picking out hymns that fit the theme of his sermon. Maybe that means that the worship leader needs to be sensitive to um, the different needs in the congregation and how the pastor in his sermon is trying to speak to all of the different needs and all of the different ages through the Word of God and should try to reflect that habit in the music as well, to reflect that purpose in the music ministry. You know, frank and open discussion, honest discussion about these issues ought to take place so that God's people do not allow something that is precious to God, something that he has commanded to be a source of division and distraction within the local church. We need to agree and understand that it's okay if we do things differently, that if we have different preferences, that doesn't make someone better or worse than another person. But what we need to do is learn to live in harmony and unity you know, Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3 that the church is, is a, a melting pot, really. You know, there, there's no longer in Christ a, a Jew or a Gentile, a freed man or a slave, a male or a female. We all have a unique standing before God. Now, that doesn't mean that 
There aren't roles and functionalities that are different between men and women. There are roles and functionalities that are different between pastors and saints and deacons and pastors. But when we come together as the church, we're not trying to implement any one particular group's cultural preferences against the other. We ought not to be doing that. Paul had in mind that the church would come together as the body of Christ and be unified. And one of the ways that we demonstrate great unity is by the songs that we sing, the selection of those songs, the practice of those songs, the carrying forth of music that previous generations held dear and current generations can learn a lot from. And there is great benefit, too, to singing new songs written in a modern way or according to a modern style that talk about old truths. And you hear those old truths in a fresh way, and it can really help cement those things deep into your heart. Well, these are some real, I think, important points of discussion that you ought to be having in your church. Um, I think there's a right mindset for maybe the average person in the pew to have when they go to worship. We didn't even really talk about that. We really talked about things from a, a leadership perspective. But I would just say this very quickly about it. If you're in the pew, your mindset ought to be, how can I learn today? How can I be edified? How can I be built up by what's about to happen? Instead of having an attitude of grumbling and complaining, have an attitude of thankfulness. Lord, thank you that there are men and women in my church who take the time to plan, to practice, to perform, so that I can focus on worshiping you. What a great joy that is. What a great blessing that is to a local congregation. I hope that these thoughts on music and music in the church will be beneficial to you and that they'll spur on some greater conversations. I'd love to hear your feedback. You can email me at gracebrethrenchapel, that's B-R-E-T-H-R-E-N, chapel at gmail.com. One of these days I'm going to get a uh, Jed Breaks Bread email address, just something that's straight up Jed Breaks Bread. But I don't have that yet, and I got a lot of other things to do first, so... For right now, just send email to my church's email address. You can check our church out on the web at www.gbchapel.org. That's gbchapel.org. Use the Connect uh, tab there to send me an email or to leave a comment. I appreciate all the feedback, and thank you so much for listening. God bless. God bless.